You are now listening to the people of digital marketing with your host, me, Kenny Soto. This podcast is your source for marketing strategies, tactics, and most importantly, career advice from the best digital marketers in the world. From B2B to B2C, startups to Fortune 500 companies, and everything in between, I interview experts in marketing so that we can grow to become better marketers together. If you're a marketer who wants a leg up in this space, well, guess what? You're in the right place. Thanks for tuning in. Everybody wants the freedom and flexibility that they got a taste of while working from home, right? So everybody wants that autonomy and the ability to to be able to set their own schedule and work their own hours whenever they want to. So I think that that is very appealing. I don't think that that's going to go away. I think that young people who are now entering the workforce, they want that just as much, if not more than people in my millennial generation did. And and the possibilities are endless too. There's so many tools out there for creators and, and people working in some form of freelance capacity, you know, there's so many opportunities today. So people who are go-getters and who, like I said, are organized and, and proactive, that there's so many ways that they could take things in a freelance capacity right now. So I'm, I'm excited to see where it goes. Hey folks, on today's episode of the podcast, we have freelance writer and marketer Kaylee Moore. Who's Kaylee? Kaylee is a writer and consultant for e-commerce and SaaS companies. She also owns ContentRemix.com, a podcast repurposing service, and she is also the co-host of the Freelance Writing Coach podcast. Her clients include Stripe, IBM, Shopify, AT&T, just to name a few. She also writes about retail, direct-to-consumer, and sustainable fashion for publications like Vogue Business, Forbes, Inc. Magazine, Entrepreneur, Fast Company, and others. On this episode, we talked about how do you launch a freelance marketing career? You don't necessarily need to be a writer to listen to this episode and to gain some insights and actionable advice that you can take away. If you're in marketing in general, I do think that you can take Kaylee's approach in, at the very least, client acquisition and kicking off your freelance business because for the most part, regardless of what you're selling, writing is definitely a tool that you can use to showcase your expertise, generate demand, and eventually, at the very least, get people to want to speak to you and you can actually do the sales call afterwards. So I do think there's a lot of value in this episode. I learned a lot when I did the interview with her in that moment. And there was a ton of new notes that I took while I was editing this episode. So I think you'll like it. If you're interested in going freelance full-time, or if you just want to do some side hustle stuff on the weekends or after work, this is definitely an episode I recommend listening to. And definitely listen to the whole episode because near the middle, she talks about how she has gotten a ton of her clients now by using refer referrals, excuse me. But at the same time, she also recommends that if you're just starting out, you can be an apprentice. And that's a new approach that I haven't heard recently. So 
definitely listen to the whole episode. And if you haven't subscribed, definitely do so because we have a lot of other heavy hitters, if you will, on the podcast coming up in the following weeks. We have Jacob Warwick, who is the CEO of Think Warwick, who's coming on the show next episode. We have Leandre LaRue, who is an author, speaker, and writing consultant based out of Canada. And he's written a bunch of books. So if you're into writing for the sake of creating a book for your career, that's definitely an episode to check out. And we have Mark Stoos, who is the CEO of Proof Analytics. And we definitely dive into a lot of things when it comes to being a CMO and what do you need to know to be a successful executive. So if you're interested in marketing in general and not just freelance marketing, you definitely need to subscribe for the future episodes that we have coming up. And this has been a very long-winded intro, so I think it's best just for us to jump in. So now let's listen to Kaylee Moore. Hi, Kaylee. How are you? I'm doing well. How are you? I'm very excited for this interview, mainly because we've interacted in the past on Twitter, and I have been fascinated with your career. After being introduced to you by a previous podcast guest named Jeff Large, I feel like this is a very serendipitous moment for myself, specifically because I have recently dived into the world of freelance marketing myself, and it has been much more difficult than what the gurus seem to be sharing on Twitter these days. (laughs) So I wanted to really have someone who is not only experienced as a freelancer, but also currently growing their own business as a freelancer, not necessarily being successful and then pivoting back into an in-house role, but someone who's actively doing it. And I think you can provide a lot of insights and advice to people who want to become freelancers in whatever capacity. But before we dive into those specific questions that I have for you, I want the audience to know more about you as a person, as a professional. So my first question for you is, how did you get into marketing? How did you get into writing and freelancing? Yeah. So I worked at a nonprofit right out of college. That was my first full-time job. And about two years in, I was getting a little bit bored just because traditionally uh, nonprofits are pretty resource strapped. And that was definitely the case here. So I started doing some freelance writing work on the side and just kind of fortunately connected with someone who was the in-house editor at a SaaS company And she and I still, we have a podcast together today. Her name's Emma Samasco. She hired me and she was my first software as a service client. And so I started doing some blog writing for her. I was subcontracting a little bit with another more established writer. And so I was doing all this on the side of my full-time job. And within about six months, I was earning just as much at my full-time job as I was on the side with freelance writing. So I gave myself 18 months to see if it would work. And fortunately, my partner was on board with that. And, you know, it's been eight years now. So that is a very, very short version. But basically, uh, through just serendipity and reaching out and letting people know that I was offering these services just through my personal and professional network, just got some stepping stones that eventually rolled into something larger. Freelancing in and of itself has pros and cons like everything else. I am seeing those pros and cons myself right now. One of them being, at least as a con, as as a freelancer, you don't get that added benefit of health insurance or any kind of insurances that come from like a a full-time position. And I'm sure that there's a whole list of things that people can Google. So I'm not going to ask you about what those pros and cons are, but more so from like a high-level view, 
for the person who's considering becoming a freelancer? What considerations should they think about before taking the dive to know whether or not it's right for them? Yeah, I think it's a lot of personality fit, right? So are you good at being self-directed? Are you good at being organized and just kind of staying on top of tasks? I think that there definitely are freelancers who are successful, who kind of are, you know, procrastinators and put things off to the last minute. But most of the people that I've spoken to over my career and that I found to be really successful long-term are very proactive with how they approach not just tasks and assignments, but like, you know, the business aspects of what they're doing. And and they're just super organized. They're very self-motivated. And I feel like those are all really, really important traits. Um, The other thing too, like you said, there are expenses that you have to cover when you're on your own. You don't get paid time off. You don't get retirement matches. You don't get, you know, any of those nice perks that you would get if you were working in-house as an employee. So I think it's really important to sit down, build a business plan, look at the numbers, look at, you know, what do you need realistically to cover your expenses and then start making a plan for how you're going to reach those goals. So a lot of it is just breaking down big daunting tasks into smaller, more manageable ones that just kind of chip away at the iceberg. And so I would say, you know, have some frank conversations with people who know you well and know your personality and, you know, ask them, how do you, how do you think I would do with something like this? And then give yourself the opportunity to try it as well. Right. Cause you don't know until you try. So I think having a time window too, on when you're first getting started and saying, you know, I'm going to give myself six to 12 months uh, to see if I can earn X amount of dollars or if I like it, whatever it is, you know, you can give yourself a window so that there's kind of an escape hatch. If you, if things don't go the way you thought they would, or, or you're not enjoying it as much as you thought you would, things like that. Kaylee, do you have any team members that help you? I do. So I, I have a content manager who manages my side business content remix, where we take podcast episodes and turn them into narrative style blog post recaps. So he helps with that. And he also does kind of some VA functions for me. Um, I also work with a couple really talented researchers and writers who help me with research and outlines and and sometimes drafting as well. Um, So that's really helpful to have a network of people you can turn to, to help with kind of the piecework of different types of projects. And yeah, that's pretty much it. My husband helped me with my graphic design stuff because I'm a word person, not a designer. And other than that, it's, it's pretty no frills. It's pretty, pretty small. And a lot of it is just me functioning as a lot of different types of roles within my business. So yeah, it's, it's been, it's evolved over time, but that's where I'm at right now. I'm glad that you are at that point because I am currently trying to figure this out for myself. So I do have a VA who's helping me. I also have someone helping me on the side when it comes to audio editing, but to a certain degree, I'm trying to figure out like, how do I craft the core team, if you will? So Mm -hmm. as a follow-up, when you're considering adding people to your team, what kind of qualities are you looking for? I know, obviously, they have to have the skill set that you're looking for to help with whatever function it is. But as far as like people fit, because you're building your own enterprise, what are you looking for when you're adding new people to your team? Yeah, I'm looking for things like, do they follow directions? Like, do they pay attention to detail? If I send them my onboarding guide and there are steps that need to be completed before we can move on, if they haven't done those without me telling them to do it, I feel like that's a pretty good indicator of how well they pay attention to detail and and directions and things like that. Other things, if it's a writer that I'm hiring, I'll, I'll look at some of the writing samples and make sure that the flow and the subject matter expertise is there. 
Other things I look for is just kind of responsiveness. How quickly do they respond to emails? Is it, you know, within a reasonable 24 hour business day window, things like that. Like, do they, and, and I always give people, you know, one or two tries before I'm like, okay, this isn't working out. So say somebody misses a deadline the first time because something came up, you know, no big deal. Life happens, whatever. But if it happens more than once and it's kind of a repeat offense, that to me is like, okay, maybe this person's overloaded or they don't really have the bandwidth to take this on. So those are just kind of the things that I keep an eye out for. Before we get into some more practical questions, I want to ask you like a philosophical one, just to see your your two cents. Do you think there will be more freelancers in the future than there are now? I do. And the reason for that is, you know, we have this great resignation happening right now where people are going out on their own, launching their own businesses, trying freelancing, and everybody wants the freedom and flexibility that they got a taste of while working from home, right? So everybody wants that autonomy and the ability to, to be able to set their own schedule and work their own hours whenever they want to. So I think that that is very appealing. I don't think that that's going to go away. I think that young people who are now entering the workforce, they want that just as much, if not more than people in my millennial generation did. And and the possibilities are endless too. There's so many tools out there for creators and, and people working in some form of freelance capacity, you know, there's so many opportunities today. So people who are go-getters and who, like I said, are organized and, and proactive, the, there's so many ways that they could take things in a freelance capacity right now. So I'm, I'm excited to see where it goes. My next question is, it's a big one, so we'll take it in parts, but essentially for the person who's like, okay, I know freelancing's for me. I've done the internal audit. I've asked people for advice. I've done the research to see the pros and cons. And now I know freelancing is something I want to do. How do I get clients? Right. And that's a very Mm -hmm. broad question. So I want to break it down into three parts. So there are, in my opinion, and you can correct me if I'm wrong or add to this. I feel like there's three core places where you can discover clients, your network. You can go outbound sales, identify them based on some kind of criteria you create and do that one-to-one sales um, methodology. And then the third one is inbound. So by guest posting, by creating content, whether it's written audio, video, or a mix, you're bringing in those leads that you want for your business over time. And that's a long-term play. So those are the three that I think are available for a freelancer to get clients. And I wanted to know for each of those three components, how do you go about approaching the growth for them? Well, I'm kind of at the stage now where I'm I'm past those three things. So all of my projects and people that I work with now are people that I've worked with for a long time. And usually they came on a referral basis. Um, so I don't do outbound at all anymore. I'm not, I'm not doing any sort of um trying to attract sales. If anything, I'm I'm handing off a lot of projects because I'm just I'm overloaded right now. So that's a good problem to have. But I think you're right. I think it's very much kind of a flywheel where you're doing those three things at once and it's a three-pronged approach that way. So the other thing I would say too, and it's kind of overlooked is the apprenticeship model. So finding somebody who's really established doing what you want to do and being their apprentice. So saying like, can I be your subcontractor and basically like get an inside look at your process and how you do things and, and learn from you and see how you edit projects and things like that. So again, like that's how I started. I was somebody's apprentice of sorts. And she kind of taught me the ropes of how to do the business side of freelancing while I was also learning how she approached the blog creation type stuff. So 
I think that is really underrated. I don't hear a lot of people talking about it, but I have a few people that I work with in this type of capacity. So it's really more of like a mentorship than um, just subcontracting relationship. And I think that there's just so much value that comes out of that type of engagement to where, like I said, you're not only getting projects and, and having work that you don't have to do the, the business heavy lifting for, but you're getting training wheels in a way you're getting to learn from somebody who's been there and done it and, and can teach you the ins and outs. So that's, that's the one I I'm always rooting for is more apprenticeships. I've experienced not necessarily like bad clients. Cause I think bad is the wrong word to use, but more so like a mismatch where clients expectations and my expectations eventually clash in certain degrees. And one of the challenges that I'm having is figuring out how to qualify clients before getting paid, signing a contract, sending an invoice and starting work. So for you, what is your recommended approach for new freelancers who want to qualify clients before working with them? Yeah, definitely have several forms uh, or several fields on your intake form that help you get a gauge for like, how soon does the project start and what's the turnaround time and what's your estimated budget for this? And, you know, important things you need to know, like, do you have a content strategy in place? That's one I added recently, because if the person doesn't have a content strategy yet, they're not ready to hire me. So that is a qualifier question as well. And it helps save both of us time to, so we're not, you know, a month down the road. And then I learn all of a sudden, once I get a, a writing brief that they don't know exactly who they're writing for, or what their goals are, or things like that. So it's a matter of asking a lot of questions up front. Um, I think it's also really proactive and helpful if you send over your rates and process details on the very first email. So saying like, here's my availability, here's what my packages or fees or rate structure looks like. Um, here's basically my expectations as far as workflow, process, payment, things like that. And so laying that out up front is again another good filter, right? So an indicator of are they going to be able to align with this the processes and workflow you have in place, or are they fairly rigid and they're kind of like, no, you need to do it our way. Cause that that to me is a red flag. That's them treating you more as an employee rather than deferring to you as a professional independent contractor who has, you know, their own experience and expertise that should be leveraged. Perfect. And I think this is a great segue into going from freelancing to your main skill, which is writing. And with that being said, I wanted to ask you, guest posting. You've been mm -hmm. featured on several publications, very impressive. And I wanted to know, one, how do you discover those guest posting opportunities? And two, how do you pitch to publications a piece that you want to write for them? So for the like industry publications that I've written for, those have been the ones that really led to job opportunities down the road. So an example of this for me is copy hackers, having a byline there where people go for that type of information that has led to a lot of people reverse engineering the writers there and reaching out directly that way. But writing for the big publications like Forbes, Vogue Business, Adweek, places like that, those aren't so much a business generator and more so interest-based and authority building on my end. So I have relationships with editors at these publications that I've built mostly through Twitter. And, and so I've been publishing in those places for quite a while now, but I think a lot of a good pitch has to do with relevancy for the audience. And so if you don't understand the audience well enough, you're not going to be able to come up with a compelling pitch that these editors are going to take note of. So I think it's a lot of legwork of 
you know, doing the homework, doing the research, finding out what's, what's happening, what dots can you connect in your space? What trends and patterns can you point out? Things like that. So yeah, I think, I think there's a benefit to both of them. I would say writing for the big, big publications is great as far as ethos and authority builder, but it's not a huge moneymaker. The thing that's been most beneficial, like I said, is guest posting on those niche specific sites where my clients who I want to hire me are going for information because if they can see my name and face there as a byline, that is a green flag for them to reach out and to say, oh, this person knows what we want to write about. You know, they, they know our space. Nice. And for anyone who wants a tactical tip, I just discovered this last week. If you put looking for writers in quotations in Twitter advanced search, you can actually find opportunities faster for guest posting rather than if you were to look for, um, let's say, for example, Forbes guest post submissions in Google mm-hmm. search. And in most cases, it's actually you circumvent the pitching process to a certain degree by DMing people on Twitter. Yeah. Because then you get that initial touch point faster. And for the most part, the expectations are set within the chat. You don't necessarily need to do the the whole cycle again via email. Yes, that is that is kind of the secret hack, I think. Because yeah, people are putting out calls for writers all the time. And especially with all the layoffs that are happening for in-house publications, it seems like a lot of them are going the freelance route anyway. So there's endless opportunity right now. Writing in a niche is important, but how do you identify the niche to write in? I think it's I think it's different for every person. I think it's kind of an overlap slash Venn diagram of your interests, things that you already have some existing subject matter expertise on. So for me, going into e-commerce and software as a service made a lot of sense because I had an e-commerce store of my own for five years when I was in college. And so I had firsthand experience there that I could tap into when I was writing. And it was also an interest for me too. Obviously, if I had started my own business, that was something I I cared about and was passionate about. So it's a lot to to be writing about the same type of thing over and over for years on end. So you you really need to identify something that you enjoy and that you find fascinating. Otherwise, it's going to become a road to burnout pretty quickly. And and I think that software as a service doesn't sound very sexy. It it also doesn't really sound like anything when you explain it to someone, but when you understand what that segment is or what your little community is that you're going to be part of, and you can really sink your heels in, I feel like you just find the communities in those spaces and it becomes a door that opens to you as you, as you get more into the space. So yeah, even on Twitter, there are these little clicks of, of people who are in like the direct to consumer space or retail or whatever it is. You just have to find those people and, and see who's active speaking about different topics and then jump in and participate in the conversation. Kaylee, what are some writing mistakes that annoy you? Um, I'm, I really hate passive voice. I feel like that's fairly easy to identify with a tool like Grammarly. So when I see it, I'm like, this is easy to spot. Um, I also am not a fan of really big chunks of text. I think we all know at this point that everybody's scanning, nobody's reading word for word. So we've got to make stuff more reader friendly. And then context, lack of context is really a disservice to the reader, I think, because Sometimes as writers, we get too close to the topic. We assume that our audience knows all of the things that we know. And and 99% of the time, they just don't. So we need context. We need visuals. We need examples. We need statistics. We need to really kind of think about content creation from a rhetoric point of view, where you are 
building an argument, backing it up with data, and just making sure that there is a lot of um, that pyramid effect where you're building on top of a, a base of knowledge and just making a really, really solid piece of work. I'm glad you mentioned Grammarly. Perfect segue into my next topic. Writing tools, MarTech. There are companies out there that are promising, maybe not necessarily the replacement of writers, but optimizing writer output. And I've been going back and forth with one of my mentors on whether or not these tools are even ready for use. Other people are finding success with them. I wanted to know from your perspective when it comes to writing AI assistant tools or however you want to coin them, what are your thoughts on these tools? Do you use them? Have you seen success with them? Or do you even know other people are using them successfully? Yeah, I've tried a few of them. I think that they still have a little bit of way to go as far as functionality, but they can be helpful as far as like a jumping off point if you're feeling stuck. So like copy.ai is a good one for if you're working on headlines or you're trying to write a really good subject line for an email, whatever it is. I don't think it's going to replace writers outright, but I think it's going to make their work a little bit easier. And I'm curious to see where this goes in time. I feel like it could get to the point where it's, really, really effective. But for now, that human touch is still something you just can't quite replicate. So I don't know. I, I say it's too soon to tell. Yeah, I would agree. That's why I'm, I'm holding off. I used one for like two months and I canceled my subscription just because I was finding that I was doing more work editing the AI to teach it yeah. rather than just doing the writing itself. Sure. Which, that makes which is sense. never fun. Yeah. Right. When it, when it comes to tools, aside from that type, that you love to use? I know you mentioned Grammarly. Are there any other writing yes. tools? I use Grammarly Premium, and I also use a tool called Writer, writer.com, um, for style guide consistency. So this has a built-in tool where a branded style guide, basically it learns all of the like priorities for a style guide, and it'll check to make sure that there's consistency with the draft that you've put together. So whether it's like sentence case for headings or terms that you do or don't use, or, you know, are, does this make sense for the relevant buyer persona that we're writing for? Things like that. Um, when you're working with a lot of clients, it's so hard to keep all of that straight. So having a tool like that automates that aspect of it is a big, big time saver. And it just improves the, the quality of the work too, because like I said, it, it boosts consistency so much. So I, I've seen just individuals use this. I use it, but then I've also seen big kind of enterprise teams use it as well. And I think that there's a lot of value in something like that. Not to pander, but I'm very impressed with your career. In addition to all the things you've already done, I'm just impressed by the fact that you have so many info products or creator products. I'm not sure how you would coin them. But I've been interested in making at least one or two of my own next year, and I'm currently drafting some of them. So I wanted to ask a two-part question when it comes to info products. The first one is, how do you go about brainstorming and then going through that cycle of brainstorm, creation, editing, refining, and then publishing? And then the second part to that question is, when you are done with an ebook or checklist that you're charging money for, how do you promote that online? So I don't overthink production a whole lot. I just kind of get an idea and run with it and go. Um, what I do from there is iterate based on the feedback that I get from that first, whether it's, you know, a mini course that I'm doing, a live session or like an ebook that I put out. There's a lot of iteration that happens after the fact, but I don't 
get in my way before I get it out the door. So that's, I think, one of the secrets to, to doing it kind of in a repetitive way and doing it often. And then remind me of the second part of the question. The second part is just how do you go about launching and promoting? Launching and promoting. So I do a lot through my newsletter, which I've been putting out for six years now, twice a month. So really consistent there. That's been a great avenue for that. Um, I also have my Twitter, which has, you know, I think I have like 54,000 followers at this point. So a good audience there. And so like, for example, last week I did a session on how to write like a journalist and I promoted it through Twitter and through my newsletter. And I think I had about 80 people sign up and register and pay for the session. So I think that's such a testament to having your own sandbox that you can kind of promote these products to and to having an email list and to having a dedicated following on social platforms. It's It just makes selling products like that so much easier. And these people know you and trust you, right? They hear from you all the time. So it's just such a more natural t- transition than if you were to pop out of nowhere and say, hey, I've got this new course coming out. It just makes a lot more sense. And it's a much easier transition into paid products that way. If you didn't have a large audience, I would say start start building one now and just slow and consistent. Really find a space to lean into and stick to it rather than, you know, tweeting about a bunch of random things. Really find a space to lean into. And, and the more you do that, the more people will come to know you for a specific type of content, the stickier that will become in people's minds. When did you start seeing growth on your Twitter? I would say about two and a half, three years ago. And my husband was like, you should start tweeting about writing and content marketing and not much else, like eliminate the noise. And so I did that and I really kind of cut everything else out of my feed and it worked. I started seeing a lot more growth. I started doing Twitter threads when that was a big thing before everybody started hating it. And that seemed to be really helpful. But yeah, I've been on the platform since 2008. So I've been there for a really long time. But like I said, I didn't start experiencing that growth until I found the lane and kind of stuck to it. So I, I think that's kind of the secret sauce, at least for right now, is, you know, become a go-to figure for one thing rather than making it kind of a personal message board. How impactful has Twitter been on your career? Oh my gosh, huge. It's huge. Not only did I get my first client there, but that's how I have gotten a foot in the door with so many other opportunities, whether it's for interviews, for job opportunities, for speaking engagements, just for like authority building. I feel like it's such a easy way to get a direct path to somebody you want to speak to in a way that other platforms just don't. And not everybody agrees with that. I know that that's, that's kind of the case. But for me, Twitter has just been such a wonderful community. And I also kind of look to it as my virtual office water cooler, right? So it's the place that I go to check in with people when I need a break throughout the day to talk to people I know. And it's just a good way to keep feeling isolated because I, I live in a pretty rural area in central Illinois. And so there are not a lot of meetups. Like there's, I'm not in a thriving city where there's lots of cool events going on. So I need that connection to stay sane. Two more questions. One of them is a follow-up for Twitter again. If you had one action that you would recommend someone take on a daily or weekly basis to grow their Twitter account, what would that action be? Be consistent, number one. So don't just pop in one day and then disappear for a week. Try to do it at least five days a week. You know, take the weekends off. There's not that many people on on the weekends, but 
show up every day, participate. And like I said, try to identify the community that you want to be part of and then participate, right? Don't just sit on the sidelines and lurk and, and not comment and watch what other people are saying. Chime in. You probably have expertise and knowledge that you can share. So have conversations with people, start building rapport and, and making friends there. Um, so that consistency is really important. The other thing too is don't overthink it. I think a lot of people get in their own way when it comes to tweeting. They think, oh, somebody's already said that, or someone might take this the wrong way. Don't overthink that. Just start putting stuff out there and seeing what gets traction and what generates some conversation. And if you find that you're not getting a lot of engagement, it's okay to still just participate in existing conversations that are happening there. So again, just, I think participating is a big one. It's called social media. We need to think of it like a cocktail party. You want to be a good guest at the cocktail party. Um, and that's just kind of how I approach Twitter as a whole. So that's my, that's my two cents. My last question is hypothetical because time machines don't exist, but if they did, and you can go back in the past roughly 10 years, knowing everything you know right now, how would you accelerate the speed of your career? Ooh, that's a good question. I think, I think I would have, I was very like fear driven when I first started because I was very young and it was kind of a new field freelancing. And, and I feel like there wasn't a whole lot of playbooks. So what I would have done is really started to focus on a specific subject matter right off the bat, rather than trying a lot of different jobs and kind of hopping from one industry to another, just really leaning into a niche to focus on and becoming the go-to person for that. I feel like that would have got me leaps and bounds, you know, beyond where I am right now, which is still wonderful. I'm still in a great place. It's just that for those first few years, I was just kind of like, I don't know exactly what I want to do. So I'm going to say yes to every job that comes my way. And that was fine. Like I, it helped me pay my bills and things like that, but it didn't help establish me as like a professional freelancer. I was more just kind of like a worker for hire with no real specialization. So yeah, I, I know that some people are very anti-niche. They're like, no, you know, keep it, mix it up, do whatever you want to do. And I think just for me, I have found the most traction and the most success by leaning into one topic and really just, you know, putting a stake in the ground and saying, this is what I want to be known for. So I would have done that sooner is the short answer. Kaylee, is there anything, any product course, anything you want to plug? Yeah, I would love to plug Content Remix. I, I referenced it earlier a little bit, but we take podcast episodes and repurpose them into narrative style blog posts. So not just transcript, not just show notes, but a real true blog post with headings and pull quotes and all those wonderful things, because not everybody has time to listen to a podcast. Um, some people want to read. So it's a great way to get extra mileage for your sponsors, for your material that you've put together. Um, it's good for SEO, a lot of benefits there. So yeah, check out contentremix.com. And if anyone wanted to say hello, where can they find you? On Twitter, Kaylee F. That's my Twitter handle. My first name is kind of hard to spell. So you probably have to look at the show notes to figure that out, but yeah, say hello on Twitter. That's where I will be. Thank you, Kaylee, for your time today. And thank you to you, the listener, for listening to another episode of The People of Digital Marketing. And as always, I hope you have a great week. Bye. Hello, hello again. Thanks for listening to this episode. If you're here, that means you've listened through the whole interview. I really appreciate that. And if you haven't done so, definitely subscribe because in our next episode, episode 91 of The People of Digital Marketing, we will have Jacob Warwick, who is the CEO of Think Warwick, an executive leadership and career growth firm. 
and he helps people become better CMOs and better executives. He also has a really, really large LinkedIn following. So if you're thinking about growing your presence or you're already attempting to grow your presence on LinkedIn, we also talk about that too. So if you haven't done so, please subscribe, rate us on whatever podcast app that you're listening to this on. And thanks again for listening to episode 90. I look forward to having you listen to episode 91. Have a good day. Hey, thanks again for listening to this podcast. If you enjoyed this episode, don't forget to submit a rating and leave a review on your podcasting app. Reviews like this help to grow this podcast and get it to more people like yourself. People who want to grow in their marketing careers. If you want to say hello, you can find me on any social media platform by simply searching Kenny Soto. I look forward to hearing from you soon. And as always, let's keep growing together.